Welcome to Crazy I'm your host, John Grubbs. Welcome to the show. We have an amazing guest on today's show. We have the Chris Hardwick, mountain climber, outdoor enthusiast, and and self-proclaimed most interesting man in the world. Chris, <laughs> welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, John. It's uh, great to see you again. How's your day going? So far, so good. It's really too early to tell. I agree. I don't think I started off on the right foot this morning. About a year ago, my eye doctor had me try the one distant, one close contact so I would have the ability to read uh, up close while seeing far away because I'm extremely nearsighted. And I got in my car to come to work this morning and I, I think I've got the wrong contact in the wrong eye. And I got to my office and I couldn't even read the paperwork. I guess my eyes were so trained to do the opposite that I'm, I'm in some sort of uh, illusion dissonance right now. My eyes can't see. So I've got reading glasses on so I can see this morning too. You know, I find, John, I find it's really difficult to, to read and drive at the same time. So maybe, maybe that's part of the problem. <laughs> maybe it is. Maybe it is, you know. Uh, so I've got a question for you. This is a podcast for crazy people. Why did you say yes to the invitation? Because uh, I guess uh, I got a little bit of craziness in me, maybe like you have. Well, tell me about that. What, what's, what's the craziest thing you've ever done? Uh, how long do we have? <laughs> the craziest thing I've ever done. Uh, there's several crazy things. Let me see. I'll pick one. Uh, was crossing the border from East Berlin into West Berlin in 1985 uh, with a East German border guard smuggled in the trunk of my car <laughs> under the hail of machine gun fire crossing through Checkpoint Charlie at 7 o'clock in the morning after having spent the entire evening under arrest in uh, East Berlin. Wow. That was one of them. And, and listeners, <laughs> I, I will tell you, I, I'm definitely going to invite Chris to come back. I've had the fortunate opportunity to have dinner with Chris and hear some of the stories in his life. Uh, he has got, I think, a multitude of books in him that he needs to publish to share about some of the things he's experienced. So you live in Vancouver, Canada. How is COVID-19 impacting your community right now? Uh, it's, it's, I would say from about uh, second week, probably around about March 14th, uh, there was kind of a lockdown order. Uh, everyone go home for a couple of weeks and she'll be right, mate. Uh, after a couple of weeks, it was, oh, let's just stay at home for a couple more weeks and so on and so forth. But I'd say for pretty much uh, from mid-March through until mid-May. Things, you know, you only went out to get groceries, restocked the bar, you know, the essentials, right? Uh, And most people were pretty good uh, and stayed at home. But over the course of the last few weeks, I've seen traffic double every week. And I would say that uh, a lot of businesses are back operating again. Uh, This week has been a real turning point. Uh, we're into officially into phase two, which happened on uh, May 18th. And we don't know when phase three is going to be yet for reopening. Um, but I would say the uh, it's pretty good. I mean, the only cases, uh, the, you know, the majority of the cases that we've had in Canada have been related to old folks' homes. Mm. And uh, that's probably been about 65% of the cases. And they figured out a little bit too late that part of the problem was care workers going from one facility to another facility that were working in multiple facilities, Um, maybe lower income earners who had multiple jobs uh, and were bouncing around. And that really caused the spread of COVID in Canada. So uh, I would say the average person doesn't really feel that threatened by it. Um, People I know who have like, you know, young kids at home, 
they've they've really sort of been a bit more careful and stayed at home. Um, my kids have continued to work right through this, uh, going to work every day like normal. Uh, yeah, so I would say that I would say about fifty percent of the people in Vancouver have just continued to go about work like normal, taking the obvious precautions around social distancing and. Some people wear a mask and gloves, but yeah, I think we're getting back to normal, uh, as normal as can be. Chris, you've got boys close to my boy's age, and uh, I, I was really proud of my boys for the first couple of months. Uh, my 17-year-old, then 16, and my 24-year-old, I think, listened and took it pretty seriously. But about, I don't know, two weeks ago, social distancing among that age group vanished. They are back to normal, uh, gathering with friends, uh, doing things that were pre-pandemic. Um, is that what you're seeing with the young people in your part of the world? Yeah, I, I don't think it's just the young people. I think it's everybody. Um, I'm back doing meetings again in person, probably about half of my meetings. Uh, I'm doing my group meetings uh, about a third of my members are showing up uh, to the group meetings. I would say that uh, clearly 50%, look, the people that are back out there, they're not, it's not the same as it was. And I don't know if it will ever be the same as it was. Like when you're walking down the footpath, when I take the walk, dog out for a walk with my wife and there's somebody coming down the footpath, you cross the street. <laughs> All right. When you're walking down an aisle in the store, you don't brush past them with your shoulder. You kind of step out the way. You don't you give, give them people... a hug? I haven't hugged, done a lot of hugging recently. No, no. Right. not outside of my own family, right? <laughs> but yeah, that, that personal contact, um, shaking hands, you know, I got to keep my hands in my pocket, not even doing the bump anymore. So I think there's a lot of those things that we have just always done. Um, have left the way we communicate as a society. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if it comes back. So if, if you read any of my work, I did a uh, newsletter last week about human touch and I went to a funeral two weeks ago. I went to another funeral last week, not COVID-19 funerals. These were, uh, these were just normal, normal uh, end of life for people that uh, I go to church with. And I couldn't help it when the widow in the first funeral offered, you know, a need for a, for a consoling hug. I gave it to her. Mm -hmm. And when her older son asked, you know, stuck his hand out, I shook his hand. I hugged, you know, the grandson who plays baseball with my youngest son. And uh, the whole point of the article was that I don't think this fear of touch is going to be sustainable. I think we are going back to the need because it's been in us as humans for so long. Um, I think we'll wash our hands more. I think we'll uh, be a little bit more aware, but I have a hard time thinking that this fear of touch can be sustained. What are your thoughts? Absolutely. I, I know that in my family, uh, we're a family of huggers and uh, that extends. You say muggers? Or hu oh, I'm sorry, huggers. Huggers, huggers. It's probably my accent. Um, and uh, yeah, I hope it'll come back. I, certainly it hasn't changed in my family, although only in my, you know, with my wife and kids. I mean, it doesn't extend beyond that at the moment. Uh, I agree. There's a need to touch. Uh, I mean, it's inherent in, our, in ourselves, right? We need to touch ourselves like, you know, our, our hands, they need to be busy, right? They, we need to, a lot of people touch their face all the time. Like it's, it's, it's constantly stopping yourself from doing things like that and washing the hands. Yeah. I've washed my hands more in the last three months than I have in my entire life, I think. <laughs> so I agree. I think that there'll, there'll probably be less people that get sick. Yeah. I think there's a lot more awareness around cleanliness, certainly wiping, cleaning vegetables and mm. fruit when we get home and you know, when the, Amazon boxes show up at the front door every day. It's like, you know, we always get rid of the cardboard straight away and the packaging and wash our hands, right? So there's a lot more 
awareness around that. But I absolutely agree. I, I believe and I hope that that human contact, that physical human contact will come back. Certainly things like shaking hands and, you know, greeting with a hug uh, of close friends and family. That's, I do believe that that's an important part of who we are as humans. Yeah. So I have an opinion on this, but I'm going to share mine after yours. Where are you on the spectrum? Was this response overhyped or was the response appropriate? I think given the differences between this particular virus and previous viruses and the fact that uh, unlike SARS, which was evident within, you know, hours, um, I think the response was appropriate uh, given the uncertainty and given the speed that this circulated the globe and the inability to detect um, the virus early. Um, you know, we can have a, a really good debate about the economic impacts associated with that reaction. Um, but I do think, you know, you use the word humanity already. I think that we have a deep-seated uh, need, I think, to help people. And, uh, and, you know, we don't want to see our friends and our family and other people die from something that we can't see. So the appropriate response of protecting people by telling them to stay at home for a couple of weeks, I think that was an appropriate response based on the information that was available at the time that that decision was made. Um, and it wasn't until we saw the curve flatten uh, in most you know, countries around the world that took those fairly extreme measures. Uh, it wasn't until we were already well into that process that people started to go, oh, hang on a sec, what's happening to the economy now? And, uh, you know, all of the government handouts, of which there's been a lot in Canada as well as the U.S., like, who the hell's going to pay for all of this? <laughs> like, how many generations is this going to be around for? Like, but I think that was a conversation that happened after. You know, like, at the time that the decision was made, go home for two weeks and we'll get through this. Um, at that point in time, that was probably the right decision to be made. It's always easy to look back in retrospect and yeah. say, oh, well, we should have, could have, would have. But yeah. I think as a, at a government level to save lives, and uh, when you look at what happened in Italy, where they became quickly overwhelmed in terms of the medical facilities, which resulted in the increased number of deaths, there was definitely a concern that if it got to pandemic proportions in Canada, there would not be the medical staff and there would not be the facilities available to care for the people. So yeah, at the time, I think it was the right decision. I agree. I agree with the information that we had available at the time. I think the unknown was probably the major uh, predicate in doing what we did. Um, I do however, believe that the data, because it changed so much during the course of this pandemic. I mean, one month, wear a mask. Next month, don't wear a mask. You know, I think we're back and forth. I think the World Health Organization just put out this week that they don't recommend wearing face coverings unless you are directly taking care of a COVID-19 patient. So with the information changing so much, uh, it's really hard to, to be neutral on the information that we're getting because it changes so much. What are your thoughts on those changes in just the simple data and recommendations by the so-called experts? You know, I, I think that there's a common sense factor that comes into play with everything in life. Uh, we're always getting information coming at us from all kinds of different sources around the world. I, for one, don't spend a lot of time watching the news, mm. buried in social media. Uh, I pretty much live my life based on a certain amount of common sense uh, and just how I was raised. And so if I'm going to go into uh, a likely scenario where I'm going to be forced into close contact with people, uh, I'll put a mask on. I went to see my chiropractor on Monday 
And, uh, you know, my back and neck have been killing me, right? I broke my back when I was 16 racing motocross and I broke my neck, you know, when I was 50 racing downhill mountain bikes, right? And I like, I just need to see the chiropractor every month or two. And I hadn't been to see him for three months, right? So I showed up at his office on Monday morning. He's open again. He's wearing a mask. He gives me a mask, put that on. We go and we do our, you know, do our thing and I leave and it's like, that's kind of the first time I've worn a mask in three months. And uh, only because, you know, that was the terms of the, 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 you know, getting cared for. Right. Um, I, 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 again, I just think it's a certain amount of common sense. I mean, if you, if you're at risk, if you're feeling sick, if you're caring for someone with COVID, then obviously there's an increased likelihood that you might have the virus. And as a result, you should take precautionary actions. Um, I think that the information changes based on, again, the information that's available at that point in time. And um, again, it's just, you just, just because somebody says to do something, right? Like you mm-hmm. interpret it based on your own, your own sense of risk, your own sense, your own parameters. Um, yeah. I don't get too hung up on that because I'm not sitting around listening to the world health organization rules every day. Right. Like, so I just, you know, I just roll with it. They're imperfect humans, just like the rest of us, I guess. I guess so. So let's pivot a little bit. What is your prediction on economic recovery? Fast or slow? What do you think? Slow. Slow. It's uh, slow. It's it's, uh, Jim Collins, you know, the flywheel concept, right? You've got this massive flywheel which is the global economy. And we pretty much stopped it. And it's really, really hard to get things moving again. So it's going to take time. And uh, there will be certain industries that may never recover. You know, conventions as we know them, 5,000 people, you know, 120,000 people down in Vegas at the World of Concrete. Like, you know, is that going to happen again? I don't know. You know, um, hotels, banquets, all those sorts of things. Yeah, I, I, restaurants where there's just people crammed in these restaurants in a small space. Uh, I don't know. I've never been a big fan of all of that, like human congestion and concerts and bars and nightclubs. And I saw, so yeah, it's, uh, I'm more of getting in the mountains and get away from people kind of peace and quiet. So, so I, I think it's going to take time um, like it does after any, economic crash, uh, it takes time to come back. And, uh, and I do think that there will be certain industries that will never be the same again, you know, like the cruise industry. Are we going to, you know, are you going to be racing out to hop on a cruise ship next week? I don't know about that, you know. Like I'm going <laughs> to think twice before I go on a cruise again. My in-laws got stuck on a ship circling, doing, doing figure eights in the Southern Atlantic ocean off the coast of Cape town Mm. for a week waiting to get permission for their 21 day cruise from, from um, Dubai down to Cape town to end. They didn't, they they didn't go to any of the landings, any of the uh, docks they were supposed to go to all of the shore visits got canceled because like they got on the ship on like March, 12th or something and then the whole world got locked down a few days later and so it's like are you going to want to hop on a cruise ship anytime soon so yeah i think there's certain industries are going to be impacted for good and then others are going to bound back uh, just out of absolute necessity so but it will be slow you guys have uh, amc movie theaters in vancouver amc uh uh, there used to be a, a AMC Pacer okay. around in there, guy like the AMC Cars. Oh, <laughs> I don't know about AMC theaters. I don't know. So AMC, What's an AMC? AMC Movie Theaters is a is a huge chain in the in the United States, okay. and they, they announced this week that uh, they don't know if they will be able to survive this. You know that industry. Yeah. And, my, and my wife asked me last night while we were having dinner. She said, "Would you would you go to a movie cinema?" And I said, "You know." I think I would if it, I mean, it's got a really high ceiling. If, if people weren't jammed in there next to each other, I think I would go into a theater. 
And yeah. I'm opportunistic. I'm, this is this year will be our 30th wedding anniversary, and I'm thinking, man, I might be able to really capitalize on current conditions to get a trip of a lifetime pretty reasonably this year. It's it's uh it's in early October, so I'm saying, hmm, maybe we can do something. Talking pretty- about a cruise. I don't know if it's a cruise or not. Maybe I don't know, but I'm I'm yeah. definitely thinking about taking advantage of cheaper everything when it comes to travel. What about you? Oh, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, my wife and I do a trip every August. Uh, last year we went traveling around South America. So I was climbing a bunch of mountains in uh, Peru and Bolivia, and we were down in Chile wine tasting. And, and so this year we're supposed to be going to Iceland, Scotland, Ireland, and Wales. And uh, I have a new uh, life goal, which is to summit a thousand mountains in the world because I'm a bit of a mountain climber. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I had the trip all planned to summit all the highest peaks in Scotland and Ireland and Wales and in Iceland. And I uh, was pretty excited about this trip. And, uh, and of course, with COVID, we've had to cancel it. Yeah. Um, so one of my other goals is to go to five new countries every year until I've been to every country in the world. And so I've had to change that from five new countries to five new provinces because we haven't, we haven't been to the Maritimes. Uh, so we're going to take the opportunity to fly to Halifax and travel all around the East coast. So, um, New Brunswick, uh, Nova Scotia, Prince Edward Island, Labrador, Newfoundland, uh, I don't think we'll be crossing the border into the U.S. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, the national parks all opened uh, on Monday this week. So yeah. they're back open for business. So that means we can get into all of the amazing places we want to go. Uh, is it going to be as busy as normal? Well, I, I know one thing. There probably won't be anywhere near as, uh, as many RVs coming up from south of the border, uh, you know, because I don't know what the situation is going to be with non-essential travel. So, yeah, we'll turn... You know, I'm all about turning uh, turning things into an opportunity where possible. So we'll continue to do, yeah, like you're saying, like we'll continue to do that. Actually, just last night, I was, uh, I've got a retreat for my three um, tech groups, Vistage groups in, uh, in the Okanagan here, which is about four hours from Vancouver. It's a, a big wine region in Canada. And uh, I was just uh, pricing out hotel rooms last night. Uh, and I was amazed at how many bookings they've already received mm. in the last two weeks compared to when I inquired a couple of weeks ago. So I think uh, people are already looking to get their lives back and uh, are already planning trips. Uh, some of the places I went on to, they're fully booked for the whole summer already. Wow. So like people are desperate to get back out and get their life back, right? Yeah. And so I think that people are just going to go for it. The risk is low and they are going to get back out there and, you know, do what they wanted to do, get, get their lives back. Yeah. I agree. Uh, I think if, if you look at my prediction and the analysis that I've done, especially in the USA, the economy was so strong going into this pandemic. So, and I use the analogy of a river. I love your flywheel analogy, by the way, but I use the analogy of a river. This roaring river was just dammed up. And I think as the, as the dam starts to lose its ability to hold back the water, I think that we're going to see a, a huge surge in a return for demand in a lot of sectors that people are unsure about. And I do agree with you. There's going to be some that don't recover. This it's just inevitable, but the law of supply and demand is going to bring a lot of sectors back faster than I think most people realize. Um, got a question for you. I want to pivot again one more time. Uh, I've been, and you haven't followed my podcast. I didn't, I didn't want you to have a lot of information. So this is just really just a, a great conversation among friends but I've been following Sweden's data since early March and I call Sweden's response to the COVID-19 virus, the canary in the coal mine. They didn't lock down. They trusted people to be responsible. Uh, People did social distance a little bit that people didn't crowd into restaurants as much or bars, Um, but they didn't lock down. People could live their, their lives 
with somewhat normalcy. I think Sweden is going to be the, I guess, the example for the rest of us in the world during this recovery and this opening up. What are your thoughts? Well, um, let's face it. One of the very important words you used were they were responsible, right? And so um, the question is, uh, can we expect everybody else to, in the world to behave responsibly the mm. way the Swedes did? And so I have quite a few Swedish friends and I've spent time in Sweden and you should definitely get some of them on your show because they're a little crazy as well. I've had some <laughs> crazy times with Swedes skiing in France in the eighties. Um, but they're also Europeans and uh, Northern Europeans and they're, they're pretty responsible and they're pretty determined and they're, you know, and they're also Sweden is uh, it's, it's, it's not quite to the same extent as New Zealand, but it's a, it's, it's not as heavily populated as other parts of the world, right? It's also a very cold climate, you know, so they've got some climate benefits there. Um, and, yeah, I, th I think that uh, it's a great example. Uh, I agree with you in terms of the canary in the coal mine example. Um, and uh, I think that, um, yeah, they're going to, like any business that doesn't lay off their employees, you know, uh, social capitalism, I think they're going to bound back a lot quicker than everybody else. Um, they're um, not as reliant, I think, on, on some of the other um, countries around the world. They're, they're kind of a self-reliant type of country. Um, so, yeah, they will bound back quicker than everybody else, for sure. Um, and I agree with you. I mean, I look at New Zealand. They completely locked down and shut down the whole country. Mm. Um, they've had, you know, I don't know, what, half a dozen deaths. So, like, it's been pretty pretty incredible what they've achieved there, but the economy, is it ever going to recover? I mean, it's, it's, it's the exact opposite of what happened in New Zealand yeah. yet geographically kind of similar, uh, you know, one in the Southern hemisphere, one in the Northern hemisphere countries that are fairly insular, self-sufficient. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see 10 years from now what their economies look like. Uh, and, and so it's, it's that balance between uh, protecting people in their lives and governments trying to make the right decision from a saving people's lives perspective to the economic engine and to making decisions based on the economic outlook. And so that's been the, the big balancing act right throughout the entire pandemic. And so you talked about uh, how quickly things recover and bound back and and, you know, it is going to be very dependent upon the, I think, the emotional perspective of people. If they want their lives back and they want to go back to what they were doing before and they have the means and they have the money to, to live the life that they had before, then they're just going to claim their life back, right? They're going to go back to doing all the same stuff they want to do and they're going to say to hell with the risks associated with it. And then others who maybe that I, I know quite a few. I mean, I have friends of mine that got COVID, were very, very sick, uh, but they recovered because they were, you know, middle-aged, healthy people. Uh, they got through it. They recovered. They're okay. But, you know, when they were in the depths of it, we didn't know if they were going to die or not, right? Yeah. And uh, there was a lot of risk and uncertainty around that. And so it's, it's everyone's going to react differently based on their own, um, circumstances. I got a couple of members who, uh, one of them had prostate cancer a few years ago. You know, uh, another one's got a, a lung condition. They're high risk. Mm. They haven't left house. They haven't left their house in two and a half months. Yeah. And can you blame them? Mm -mm. Because they're high risk, right? That they're, they're my my in-laws, the same thing. My in-laws are in their early eighties. You know, my father-in-law had leukemia ten years ago. He's a high risk. Yeah. He hasn't left the house. So I think it's really, everyone's going to make their own decisions about what works for them. And, and it's based on their risk profile as well. Like I have a really high risk tolerance. I'm a risk taker. It's one of my values in life is taking risks. So I'm going to be more inclined to go out and take risks and, and be around other people um, based on my beliefs. <laughs> so really we're all entitled to, you know, as humans, we've got a certain amount of uh, ability to make our own decisions, right? Like we're big kids, right? We're, we're grown-ups. 
Um, and, and for our kids, it's up to us as parents to provide some level of guidance. Uh, but ultimately, even for our kids, you know, depending upon their age, they're going to make their own decisions, just like my kids are doing. They're just, they're at work. They're making their own decisions. They're earning money was more important to them than staying at home. So we're like, okay, well, you know, take so-and-so precautions. Don't be bringing any friends back to the house. Um, and yeah, do what you got to do. Well, I think that's yeah. a wise way of looking at it. I'll go on the record for all the listeners around the world. We have listeners in New Zealand, by the way, and Australia uh, and Sweden. But here's my, here's my on the record statement. I do not think knowing what we know now about this virus and knowing what we see with our economy, I will go on the record, even with all these protests and, and riots that are going on and the, uh, it seems like the immediate disappearance of social distancing. I'll go on the record that if we have a second wave for whatever reason, I do not believe the American economy will be locked down again. We will live with the virus. What are your thoughts about that or Canada's response? Yeah, I agree. Um, I think that, uh, you know, whether, I, I guess the first question is, will there or will there not be a second wave? And, you know, if you pull out the stats from uh, 1918, 1919, when we had uh, the plague, uh, the, the global pandemic then, uh, and you look at, if you overlay that on today's stats, it's like, oh, my goodness, we're headed for a second wave in November, right? And that's pretty much what the stats show. However, um, you know, one would hope that there's a lot more information available now than what there was then. But there's also a heck of a lot more people on the planet. And uh, there's a lot more uh, travel and communication and everything else. Um, I do agree that um, there's already been a massive uh, movement in terms of our level of education around social distancing, around, you know, cleanliness, uh, disinfection, hand sanitizer, uh, working from home. Like, so there's been a lot of things that have happened already in the last two and a half months to be able to live and work with and continue to function around COVID. And so um, people, if, if and when the second wave comes, they're going to hopefully be continuing to practice uh, some of those things throughout the course of the summer and into the fall. And um, I, yeah, I, I guess you can call it uh, like, I, I know I did listen to one of your podcasts early on, or maybe it was one of your articles uh, on LinkedIn um, about, uh, you know, casualties, right? The collateral damage. And if there is a second wave, people will die. Um, and, but again, I go back to the fact that we will make our own choices to a certain extent as humans, we will make the decision whether to continue on with our lives or whether to go home and batten down the hatches again. And, uh, people, uh, have a need to live their lives. And in order to live their lives, they need to have a certain amount of income to mm. do that. And to have that income, they need to hold down their job or their business and continue to operate. So just like myself, uh, they're probably going to assess the risk and they're going to determine what the likelihood of getting the virus is. And they're probably going to take the risk and do things in the hope that they won't, you know, catch the virus. And as a result of that, yeah, from a weather perspective, something, again, we have no control over, certain parts of the world might be impacted more by the weather as we go into the fall. Again, I mean, we're on a, you know, we keep talking about everything from a northern hemisphere perspective. It's the middle of winter in the southern hemisphere right now, right? So we're just going into winter, right? So it's June in Australia and New Zealand and South America and South Africa. Well, that's pretty much November mm. in the northern hemisphere. So I would argue that we can watch pretty closely to see what happens in the Southern Hemisphere over the course of the winter that they're going into. And that'll be a pretty good indication of what's going to happen in the Northern Hemisphere. So in, you know, just a mindset, right? Like we all, everyone talks about November and the fall and going into the winter. Well, that's the same for the other half of the world 
south of the equator, right? There might be less people, but it's still, you know, they're going into that right now. So let's watch and see what happens in New Zealand and Australia and Brazil and Africa. And uh, that'll be a good indication as to what's going to happen later this year. I think that is so wise, such a wise way to look at that. So let's pivot again. Um, There are young people at the beginning of their careers dealing with this pandemic and this economic shutdown and recovery. What's your advice for someone just getting out of high school or someone just getting out of college that's in the job market right now? What's your advice for them? Go for it. Take advantage of the opportunity. There's a lot of people sitting at home. I had this firm belief that every issue is an opportunity in hiding. So I don't think that people should be sitting around and, uh, again, not, not doing what they would normally do. Take the precautions, uh, whether you wear a mask or not. I guess it depends upon whether you're reading the World Health Organization recommendations on a daily basis. But take the basic precautions that we've been told and get on with it and uh, go out and get a job and uh, start a business or do whatever you're going to do. Uh, look at the opportunities that might exist around COVID, um, you know, back in 2008, during the last financial crisis, I, I, I sold my business and started a new group of companies and did, did five acquisitions in mm. 2008, nine and 10. Um, and there's a lot of opportunities out there right now. Uh, maybe not for somebody coming straight out of school, but, 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 you know, my son who got my oldest son who got laid off, uh, in the middle of March, um, he started two companies. Uh, one is an ethical property development business uh, for social housing, which he's looking at getting launched this year. And another one was uh, he was helping my wife and I with a lot of IT related issues because we're, you know, we're baby boomers, right? So we're, we're a little uh, inept at those kinds of things. And as a result of the help that he was able to give us, he launched an IT business. And now on the side, he, him and his girlfriend are actually, offering uh, IT support services to people. So um, I think that there's just as much, if not even more opportunity out there today. Uh, And I think that, so that's my message is go for it. But then again, that's kind of my slogan in life, right? Go for it. So I don't think that's going to change. Well, good. Uh, I agree with that. Uh, You know, my oldest son just graduated from university in December, got his first professional sales job and lost it in May due to the pandemic. And I told him, I said, I want you to keep a certain mindset. Even if we're at 15% unemployment, even if we get to 20% unemployment, that means 80% of people are still working. I said, if, if you're at the top of your game, if you believe that you're employable, that you have something to offer, you should position yourself in the top of that 80% and don't let the 20% impact your mindset. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. I mean, I'm a big fan of uh, mindset conversations. And a lot of what we do in life is based on just how we're wired, right? And unfortunately, uh, you know, part of that's DNA, part of that's pre-programming is maybe, you know, what we were born with, the tools we came into this world with based on what we inherited from our, from our parents and our family. Um, and so, so I, I do think that a lot of us have the ability to flick the switch. Mm. You know, if we want to have a, a, a future positive outlook versus a future negative outlook, mm. if we want to have an, a, a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset, like these are things that um, we have the ability to choose one life over another life. But that's a little simplistic because as I say, we're not necessarily all wired the same way. Some people are wired differently, right? So to to have more of a growth mindset. But I do agree that um, if you have the drive and if you have the ambition and you have the goals and you have the tools and you have the mindset, then you will be one of those 80% that's got that job. Again, I go back to my oldest son, right? He got laid off in March. Between March and when he got a new position, two months later in the middle of May, he sent out 150 resumes. Mm. Um, he did, I don't know, dozens and dozens of online interviews. And he came up to me in uh, early May, pretty frustrated. 
because uh, he was working from home in his basement office. And he said, Dad, I, I don't get it. I, I'm, I'm applying for all of these jobs. And I said to him, I said, you know, look, most of these people aren't actually hiring. They're just, they're running ads to see who's out there to test the waters. They're they're doing interviews. They're getting ready for when the economy gets going again. So they might actually do a, you know, hire then. I said, you know, honestly, firing out resumes is, is kind of a, is that the most strategic thing to be doing right now? Well, what do you mean, dad? I said, well, well, you know, my experience has been when it comes to getting jobs, it's often who, you know, not what, you know? So I said, why don't you, Think about who you know in your network. Have a look at your LinkedIn network. Have a look at people you've worked for in the past. And why don't you get on the phone and just start calling up people you know? Well, he called a company that he worked for a couple of years ago on an internship uh, for the summer, uh, which is a business that does home food deliveries, FoodX, or their other name is spud.ca, and um, sustainable produce urban delivery, I think they call Anyway, he called them up and uh, guess what? He's got an interview the next day and he starts the following week. Wow. And so he just, he was reached out to the CFO of this organization. He, you know, he went through an interview process. They didn't actually have a job for what he was looking for. He pretty much, because of the relationship, he got a job and they created a position and they brought him on. So, you know, going back to your issue around getting a job or getting work, um, I, I, that, you know, that was how I was brought up. My dad was always like, you know, he, he, he got me my first job. I'm not proud of it. But, uh, when I came out of high school, I wanted to get into, you know, into surveying in the construction industry. That's what I wanted to do. And, uh, he called up a friend of his and who knew somebody who had a job and I got a job. Right. And, uh, so I don't know, I, I was lucky, but I've, never really had any interviews in my entire life. It's always been through who you know. Yeah. And so um, I think that that holds true today is, is it's all about networking. It's, mm. it's, it's, it's leveraging off your network. And so, um, yeah, I, I would say to people, if you, you know, if, irrespective of the unemployment situations, if you're looking for a position, um, identify the types of companies with the type of cultures where you want to work and go after them and be relentless and don't give up and don't take no for an answer. And, and you know, the, the squeaky wheel gets the grease, right? Like uh, you just got to be persistent. There's no substitute for hard work and perseverance. You just got to go for it and Amen. don't accept no for an answer. So you just proved or at least validated one of the axioms that I live by. And listeners, if you've not heard me say this before, I want this to soak in. I want this to be something that sticks with you. But your network equals your net worth in life. Your network equals your net worth. And what Chris is saying is that if you are out there looking for something right now, don't miss the opportunities that are within your network. Now, I know, Chris, I knew we would not get to everything I wanted to ask you today. And I know you've got a hard stop coming up. So I want to shift forward a little bit. I always like to uh, get people that are on this podcast to share a little bit about why they live where they live. Why Vancouver? Why did you choose that place? I mean, you're obviously not a native born Canadian. So tell us about in a, in a real short sense, what, what landed you in Vancouver? Well, uh, as an Aussie, with uh, British parents who immigrated to Australia in 1950. There's a little bit of a story here, it's a good one. So when my dad was, uh, after World War II, he was in the Royal Navy, worked on a minesweeper in the Mediterranean, lucky to survive. Anyway, he went on, he worked on the Queen Mary for five years, doing trips back and forth between England and the East Coast of the US, Halifax, New York, down to Miami. And, you know, the, they call it the roaring 50s, but this was the roaring late 40s, right? And he had a lot of fun times in places like Havana and Caracas and stuff. And sure, he got into a lot of trouble. <laughs> but uh, one of the things that he discovered is that the world is an amazing place and he wanted to see some of it. So he, he, Canada seemed like a really good place to move to, but it was going to cost 20 quid, which is 20 English pounds in those days. And um, he convinced my mum uh, that they should move to Canada 
But then he found out that he could get to Australia for only 10 quid. Mm. So he's like, two for the price of one? That's a bargain. You've got to remember, my parents are from Yorkshire, right? They got pretty uh, short arms and pretty deep pockets, right? And uh, anyway, so he, they moved to Australia. And so in Australia, you're in the middle of nowhere. If you want to go anywhere, it takes you a week to get anywhere, at least a few days, right? So when you go traveling, you don't go for the weekend. You go, you know, for six months. And so when I was in my early 20s and I wanted to go traveling, the, the thing that most Aussies did is they went to Europe. So I went to Europe and I got into skiing and, and, and that became the beginning of a seven-year odyssey. I traveled to 65 countries around the world in seven years between 1984 and 1990. And it was during that time uh, on one of the few occasions when I was back in Australia. So what I would do is I would work for three or four months, save up as much money as I could. And then I would take off and I would travel to somewhere else in the world until I ran out of money. Mm. And then I would come back and get my old job back at the same company I was at because I had this really awesome boss who would just, yeah, come on back. <laughs> and um, anyway, on one of those trips when I was back in Australia, I met my wife who uh, was backpacking around Australia. And, uh, you know, she's of German descent, German and Canadian descent from Vancouver, uh, born in Ontario. And she's backpacking around Australia. I met her and I had trips to go to North America the following winter to ski, um, as I had done for a few previous seasons around Europe. And so I thought, well, this is cool. Uh, you know, I'm going to head over to Canada and stay with this, uh, you know, attractive blonde. <laughs> and um, so sure enough, I showed up at Whistler the following ski season. And uh, well, after pretty much day one, I'm like, oh, well, this is, this is the place for me. Mountains everywhere, beautiful, clean air, beautiful forests and a beautiful girl. And I'm skiing at Whistler. What could be better than this? So within three weeks of being there, I asked her to marry me. Wow. And she said, yes. And within three months, we were married. <laughs> and so when I told you about my trip to South America last year, that was our 30th wedding anniversary we yes. celebrated because we got married in 1989. So that's how I ended up in Vancouver. But why Vancouver? Because I'm a mountain man. Mm. I, although I was born and grew up in Sydney, which is just beaches, 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 I've never been very good at sitting around waiting for a wave to catch me and take me to the shore. I'm much more about one of those guys who'll get on a motorbike and or climb the mountain. And uh, I'm all about mountains i just love the mountains and here in vancouver it is mountains everywhere skiing everywhere rock climbing mountain bike riding so all of the things that i love to do are right here in my backyard mm. so you know for the last three years you visited my home up in squamish on the way to whistler all i had to do was grab my bike cross the street and i was into the forest mm. and the forest just continues pretty much all the way to alaska right so for me, Vancouver is one of the most beautiful places in the world. I love being on the coast. I don't need to be in the water, though. Um, I'll go kayaking. I'll go sailing. But I just love being uh, where I can get into the wilderness and get away from people quickly. Yeah. And so that's why I'm here, John. Beautiful story. I'm here because of the mountains and because of my wife. Yeah, I love that story. <clears throat> Uh, listeners, I, we're going to have him back because I, I've got to. I've got to tell you, I spent some time with Chris last year in that part of the world, and we got to experience Whistler and Blackcomb. And I want I want you to hear a little bit about that story because there's some there's some humor in it. But I want to pivot to one more thing before we let Chris go. And we have listeners in Vancouver. Shout out to all of you that follow this podcast. We love you. Um, what is an ideal coaching client like for you? How could someone find you online? Let's say there's a listener, a CEO, a business owner that wants business help. How would they find Chris Hardwick? They can call me at 778-836-8226. They can email me at chris26hardwick at gmail.com or they can go to my website, chrishardwickinc dot com and um yeah that's how to get a hold of me uh and yeah if you want to get together and grab a coffee or a beer or a glass of wine uh yeah i'll be there 
don't get me mixed up with the Chris Hardwick, the comedian, though, because uh, I only tell old man jokes, uh, not stand-up <laughs> comedy. Uh, but yeah, love to meet you. And uh, yeah, and I, I, you know, for me, John, I love working with anybody who is growth-minded, anybody who's open to learning and growing and recognizing that we don't know everything. And uh, through conversation and through discussion uh, is a great way for us to share experiences, share information, share knowledge. And uh, so that's a big part of what I do is just listen to what other people uh, want to achieve. Like I love to help people identify their dreams and their goals and their big, hairy, audacious goals for their life. And I love to help people get there. So my why, which, which took me with you <laughs> three years ago when I was down doing training at Vistage in San Diego, I had to get my why from a page down to a few words. And my why now is to help leaders climb mountains. Mm. And that's what I love to do. I love to help people become leaders and to identify what their mountains are in their lives and then go climb them. And so for me, I, my whole analogy in life is around mountain climbing. It's the preparation, it's the planning, it's the training, it's the teamwork, it's the supporting one another. It's the guiding, the leading, it's the, it's, the, it's the challenges that come along with failure when you don't reach the summit. It's, it's, it's when you do reach the summit and it's the uh, feeling of uh, success and achievement when you reach the summit. And then it's staying alive on the way back down because mm. a lot of people crash on the way. Most people die on the way down a mountain. Mm. Uh, that's not something a lot of people know. A bit like the stock market, right? Yeah. When you come down the other side. So that's, uh, yeah, that's what I love doing. And uh, I, I just have a lot of fun with it. And I've been doing it for about three years now. So give us your website one more time. <clears throat> it's uh, chrishardwickinc.com. chrishardwickinc.com. Check it out, people. Uh, we're definitely going to have Chris back because he just uh, touched on something that I want to revisit. I actually got to go spend time with him on the mountain and I literally did almost die coming down the mountain and I want to get it. <laughs> so uh, it, it was, it's, you got, you got to come back and, and catch part two with Chris Hardwick. Um, this podcast is for people who go big. We are intentional about living a life that is crazy because crazy people make things happen. Crazy people are the ones that solve the major problems in humanity. Crazy people go to the moon. Crazy people dive in the ocean and find the bottom. Crazy people are the miracles of humanity. Make sure that you share this podcast with other people that may be interested, and we will definitely have the most interesting man in the world back <laughs> for part two. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. We will talk to you next time.